0: Yo, what is up, everybody? It's Johnny King with another episode of The Johnny King Show, and I'm so privileged to have Scott Pinyard on the show today. Hey, man, thanks for being here.
1: Hey, I'm excited to be here.
0: He is, if you're not actually watching, because I know we've got the video version, but we also, Scott has has an amazing beard. He's got- I grew it
1: in a week. Thank you.
0: One week. Yeah, he's got really, it's like Chia Pet. You just put on- (laughs) the seeds and then you water it and it just grows right No, it's you've got great beard game thank you yeah. thank you i shaved mine off just just for a little change of pace but we're uh we're here to chat about just addiction to alcohol and uh he well why don't you just while I, rather than me botching your intro, <laughs> why don't you tell, tell the listeners, the, the viewers about a little bit more of your experience and how, you know, your own bouts with alcohol and everything else, what le- led you into being?
1: Sure. So, uh, we, well, geez, so it's, it's been about s- almost 10 years that I've been on this journey. Mm. Um, six of those years was me trying to figure out how to quit drinking. Uh, and the last four years have been not drinking. Um, and I tried a lot of different things. I went to AA meetings, I read books, I talked to people, um, and it was uh, it was tough. It was rough going. Um, eventually, I found a book called This Naked Mind, uh, and that book uh, just kind of changed everything for me, and I think it was a bit of, you know, right time and right place for me to receive that message. Um, <clears throat> so I, I read the book. The first time I read it, uh, I did exactly what the author tells us not to, which is read it and two days. So I did. And I was real excited and motivated, but like can happen very often when we get motivated. Uh, There wasn't a lot of strength behind that. And so as the motivation waned, uh, so did my sobriety. Um, so I, I read it a second time, but I took my time with it. Um, and I went through uh, almost two full months of reading the book and journaling about how does, this, how does this apply to me? What does this actually look like? And through that process ended up changing my thinking to the p- to point where quitting alcohol wasn't anywhere near as difficult as it had been in the past. Mm. Um, and that, uh, the last time I drank was May 20th, four years ago, 2016. It's hard to do math sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, and I haven't looked back, you know, that's, that's been it. Um, and so what happened from there was really interesting. I, I, um, I kind of caught the bug for helping people with this. Um, you know, I was so blown away by the methodology um, that I'd kind of used on myself. I was in a online men's group at that point and I, people found out about it. We were on Slack, so we had a sobriety channel um, and people just started asking me like, hey, what, how'd you do it? You know, what happened? And so I sort of informally started coaching people. Um, and in the meantime, I had a day job as an engineer and uh, I wasn't loving it, you know, and it had been about 15 years in the engineering world and it just wasn't, I couldn't find a place that I fit. I couldn't find a place that I was happy. Everything seemed to be stressful. So this was all kind of going on at the same time. And one of my friends in that group was like, you should like do this for a living. So, you know, at first I was like, no. And then I thought, What the hell? So I I put a website together and uh, just started offering my services coaching and that became kind of my moonlighting gig for a while. And then uh, eventually I had the opportunity to meet the lady who wrote the book this naked mind that helped me quit her name's annie um and annie and i hit it off right away i was on our podcast and we're trying to figure out how is it that we can work together um well fast forward i won't give you all the details but fast forward about a year after that first meeting and uh i was starting with her as head coach of this naked mind um and i haven't looked back you know for me both with alcohol and with you know working with people um to get them free from it it's been something um it's been something that that's personal to me. Um, it's also been something I really want to share with people. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, you know, looking at this whole thing over the the prism of the last four years, I think one of the things I'm happiest about is that conversations like this happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I really, if I look at what really drives me, I really want to change the conversation around alcohol um, to really shift how we look at it. And I think that comes through helping people and talking to guys like you.
0: Well, let's, let's keep that question going along like shift that conversation how compared to to what if, if someone's listening to this and maybe they have had some issues and some bouts or currently with alcohol versus those that are listening that haven't had maybe any issues with alcohol but they're still listening maybe yeah. set some context up for them with what the, the conversation sounded like before and what you're wanting to shift it to
1: so there's a few things, you know, I could give you a long list, but there's, there's a few things in general that I think are really important that people just don't seem to know or understand. And, and we're still finding out more and more with more research every day. Um, the first is that, you know, our, we live in an alcohol-soaked culture. Um, and the way that we have set up this conversation around quitting drinking has really been in this binary idea of you're a normal person or an alcoholic. Um, And, you know, we haven't had, uh, we haven't had medically, we haven't been in the place where this has been definable or the case for a very long time. As a matter of fact, you know, um, psychologists and people that use clinical definitions haven't actually used the term alcoholic in a long time. You know, we've moved away from that and we've seen and we've understood the research that this is this is more of a a spectrum sort of disease. So they actually use something called alcohol use disorder. Um, That's the first one. Right. Is this idea that there are normal people and alcoholics. I want to blow that up um, because it's just not backed up by research or by science or by my own experience. Um, Second, you know, with the alcohol, so culture soaked culture I was talking about. Um, You know, I wanna see it be okay for people to not drink. Uh, One of the things that stopped me for a long time from quitting drinking was peer pressure. Um, And culturally, we have a lot of that, right? There's a lot of expectation around alcohol. There's a lot of expectation that you drink to celebrate or you drink at a funeral or you drink, you know, all of these places. Mm. Um, To me, the thing that's important about funerals and weddings and all of celebrations is that we're there personally it's not the alcohol yet. So many people feel that, feel that, and feel that need to drink and that pressure to drink. And, you know, I can honestly say a lot of that contributed to my story and kind of where I went with alcohol. Um, so I, I, I want to see that changed, you know, and then finally, you know, I think the biggest thing, um, you know, the should I drink, should I not drink has been an addiction question for a long time. There's more and more evidence out there to show that this should really be a wellness question. Right. And that just like anything else, like whether you choose to eat, I don't know, kale or iceberg lettuce, like it's a choice based on a particular set of ideas that you have. I want people to see alcohol the same way. Um, If there's one thing that's come into focus for me, especially, you know, we're recording this during COVID-19, like, all of the stories of people not being able to quit drinking and the damage that it does to them and their families, their relationships. Um, I want to help move that stigma away so that it's easier for those people to take that next step, um, and, and let go of it.
0: Totally. Well, let's talk about that too, in the sense of, you know, I've, I've seen just the headlines and everything else and done the research that, I mean, substance abuse in in terms as well as, pornography and video gaming and all of just the vices that we are all probably accustomed to have drastically gone up during COVID-19. Right. Uh, but in terms of actually talking about just alcohol in general, do you feel like there's a common theme as to why people tend to be addicted to to alcohol? Is it loneliness? Is it depression? Is it lack of self confidence? What, what is it? Or is it all the things?
1: It's all the things. And, yeah. and here's, here's how it happens. You know, this is what happened to me. I moved to New York City after college. I drank a lot in college, um, but I was all alone in New York. Um, and anyone out there who's listening, who's lived there all alone knows that being lonely in a city of 9 million people is a unique experience. <laughs> yeah. um, and I, I wanted to escape that emotion. You know, I wanted to get away from that. Um, and that's what our brains do, right? Like these negative emotions, these bad feelings, we want to fix them. Um, and so all of those that you just mentioned are reasons that people would give me, you know, in our programs about why they, they started drinking. But here's the catch, right? As, start, as soon as you start drinking because you're angry or stressed, um, your brain will make that association and that becomes the solution. To your emotion. So instead of actually dealing with, you know, in my case, instead of actually dealing with that loneliness and getting out and meeting some people, um, I found myself on my couch every night in my basement apartment in Queens drinking scotch. Right. And then pretty soon what happens is that, you know, first I was drinking because I was lonely, but then I was stressed. Right. I had this brand new Fifth Avenue job. And so I was really stressed at work. And, you know, I think, well, man, it makes me feel better when I'm lonely. Maybe it'll help when I'm stressed. Um, And so what happens over time is we start to associate this idea of any negativity, any difficulty with, oh, man, I need a drink. Right. Why? Why are we saying that? We're saying that because we are experiencing an emotion, we're experiencing something that we don't know how to handle. And so we're gonna go for the thing that we know just shuts our brain down. Um, and it numbs, it numbs that negative emotion. The problem is also that it numbs all the positive emotions too. And so that's that's really what I'm talking about. And that's really what I'm seeing with people in COVID right now. Um, you know, people being locked inside, people being, um, you know, with serious economic consequences to all of this, um, those are reasons, those are those negative reasons that they start uh, reaching for alcohol. And that ends up putting them in a place where they start to create that dependency.
0: I got you. I, I For whatever reason, I had a little bit of a technical difficulties there. So I've lost you just a little bit uh, okay. right towards the tail end. Um, yeah, I think, I don't know what's going on with my internet, but uh, the things we take for granted in, in today's yeah,
1: day, right. I lost power perfect. earlier today and I was so pissed and I had to remind myself, wait, dude, you have power 24 seven and you lost it for like 10 minutes and you're angry. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. I had the uh, issues just the other day too. And I was chatting with someone recording another podcast and she's over in Australia. You know, it was so easy to get angry, you know, like, what are telling me the internet's out and we're flying at 34,000 feet, you know, above the, the surface of the earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We can, we can get frustrated, but, um, no, I really appreciate that. And I, I think that is one thing that I've always, cause I've, I've never really had to deal with, um, struggles with alcohol, but I certainly have gotten the pressures to your point of peer pressure. Cause I grew up, yeah. uh, in a religion and, and school that was pretty, you know, Christian and just, just one of those things. I mean, definitely was at college and high school, but it was kind of behind the scenes. I never really was all that attracted to it. Um, but I certainly feel like, uh, you know, getting out of school and just the, again, the pressure of like traveling for business and, you know, going out with guys that are 20 years, my senior, who are like, Hey, you want a drink? And I was like, no, they're like, what, what's your deal? Like, are you a health nut? And I'm like, like, uh, yeah, yes, I am. Let's just go with that. Yes, I am. Or you can say that, you know, I just found myself making up excuses like, Oh, I'm on a cleanse or whatever. Mm -hmm. I, I drink very rarely only because it actually just, I have such a sensitive system. It just messes up my gut and my stomach. Um, maybe that's a blessing <laughs> more than a curse, <laughs> but I I do feel like I've run into a lot of guys here in town um, in Denver, as well as just across the country who, who really are struggling right now with that sense of loneliness. And you're right. It just becomes like, if you find alcohol being the solution for one, one emotion, then yeah. it, very quickly becomes the the solution for all the emotions. And I'm writing this book right now. And in part of the book, I talk about how there's relatively like 10 different negative emotions, like anger and frustration and overwhelm and loneliness and things like that. But that there's, that there's a message that each of those negative messages, emotions are, are telling us, you know, but then there's also a solution for how you get out of it. Yes. Otherwise I feel like if we're drinking or whatever we're doing, all we're doing is perpetuating, we're running from whatever their true source is,
1: right? Absolutely. And like what I see when I talk to people is, you know, let's say you start drinking because you're sad, right? Or lonely is a good one. I hear that one a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And you start to associate negative feeling emotions with a good reason to drink. Mm -hmm. Um, What happens over time is we actually, it doesn't matter what the problem is. As soon as we start to feel the problem then the answer is drinking. Um, and you're hundred percent correct that it's really about figuring out how to meet our own needs. Right. And, and identify first, what's wrong with us. Mm-hmm. And second, what can we actually do about it? That's mm-hmm. one of the ways that we can break that
0: cycle. Do You find yourself in the work that you're doing with, uh, the snake of mine. Are you, are you working with men or women more than the other? Is it 50, 50? Do you feel like there's more of the population that you're working with than the other or is it split so down the middle?
1: yeah it's probably about 60 40 um, women and men um and there's a whole host of reasons for for why that might be um but you know i am what i'm really happy about is i'm seeing more and more guys get involved in the conversation mm-hmm. um and that's a, that's a big passion for me like i want to be able to uh you know to, to help them understand, I think the different, obviously different sexes are going to look at this differently, but guys in general, what I tend to see is I tend to see a lot of toughness, a lot of like, I'm going to, I'm going to push through. I remember there was a guy, um, I used to work with him and uh, when I quit drinking, I didn't tell anybody at work that I quit drinking um, until about three months in. But inside that three months, I end up having this conversation with uh, this coworker of mine Um, And he told me, like, Scott, I stood at the edge of this, and I just stared it in its eyes, and I willed it back. That is the sort of thing that I hear over and over and over from guys in particular. Um, And I'm not going to say, I'm not going to sit here and say that doesn't work, because there are people who have done it that way. But I will sit here and say that, like, there is science and research backs up there is a different way to do this there's a better way to do this that by the way you're also going to enjoy more and so i really get jazzed when i see more guys more and more guys and that's absolutely happening at the snake mind right now coming into our programs we also i train other coaches um and i'm seeing you know every time we do a coaching class a bigger and bigger proportion of that class is guys um so we're we're coming around but like i said it's about it's about 60
0: 40. good well i hope this uh helps support the cause and and have guys, you know, reaching out to you if they really feel like they need that support. Um, What was I going to say though? Um, I lost my question. It was a good one too. That's okay. (laughs) I, I guess my, uh, my next thought goes to like, okay, I, I, oh, I, I remember. Thank you. Thank you, God. It was the idea of, you know, a lot of times that male ego, is um what I hear because I was coaching women for eight years before I've been working yeah. with men the last two. So many women would be like, Oh, you know, like if I just had the support of my husband, or like it oftentimes when the conversation involved a man, the ego would come into play somewhere. Yeah. I was always kind of turned off from the ego because I'd never really wanted to butt up against it, you know? Yes. Um, yes. but I do feel like there's it kind of looks like, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's like to 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 look at, you know, substance abuse in the eyes and to stare it down and push it back. is that, that to me, it it definitely feels like it's, it's taking a lot of that onus on your own shoulders. Yes. Which which is a double-edged sword, because if you kind of take all the the credit for success, then you're gonna take all the credit for failure versus I feel like the other way of surrendering, vulnerability, transparency, um, humility, that feels like to me so much more sustainable but maybe yes. I'm wrong. Uh, what's your thought to those two, working with those two types of personalities?
1: So, you know, what I see often is, is people approach us in the willpower game and they're just like, look, I'm just not going to drink and I'm going to beat myself up and um, there's going to be consequences. I remember I was in a group with a bunch of guys and the, one of the guys who was trying to quit drinking, um, his deal was that if he, did, if he drank, he was going to do a live video on that group and berate himself to the rest of us. Um, I know that didn't feel good to him and it didn't feel good to the rest of us either. Like that sort of accountability we think is gonna happen and that's a very male thing of like, I'm going to force this thing to be the way that I want it to be. Unfortunately, um, that's not always the easiest path. As a matter of fact, a lot of times it makes it harder on ourselves because if you think about what happens if you're addicted to alcohol and your response when you're trying to quit drinking and you you slip is to be, beat the hell out of yourself, um, what are you doing? You're creating more negative emotions. You're creating more of those reasons that you want to drink in the first place. You're actually making it a lot worse for yourself, Um, right? Because you're, you're beating on yourself and that's making you stressed out and that's making you want to reach for a drink. I was really blown away and have continued to be blown away by our methodology, which we call grace-based methodology, that it's about, um, it's about, first understanding the facts about alcohol. Like one fact that a lot of people don't understand um, is that alcohol is addictive to humans. And that's the end of the sentence. It's addictive to humans. It's not addictive to some humans. It's not addicted to your weird uncle that you only see at Thanksgiving and no one talks about. It is addictive to all humans. And so all of the guilt and the blame and the shame that we have about having a problem with alcohol, it doesn't make any sense because it is addictive to us. It is, it is a substance that gets its hooks in us. Um, And so as long as we are human, we are vulnerable to that. So being able to understand that and being able to understand that grace and compassion for ourselves is actually the way out of this, which is very counterintuitive, especially for guys. And I have to wrestle with guys a lot more in programs than with women around this point. Um, But you know, research backs this up over and over. Like, Grace based change. So compassion based change um, is not only easier on the person who's going through it, but longer lasting than compulsion based change. Mm -hmm. Right. Like being able to be okay with where we're at and working on our thoughts and emotions about that and then going through the process actually makes the process easier for us and will help us stay in this new state for longer. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's very counter. It's very counter the way that um, that that the ego will want to approach things. Right. The ego is going to want to control. The ego is going to want to dominate. Um, and normally, you know, and I'll say this sometimes in my groups, like, especially if I have a guy who's really resistant and he's like, I'm just going to quit with willpower and I'll ask him like, how's that been working for you?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, how's that process been right? Obviously not great because you're here talking to me. So maybe there's an opportunity to look at a different way of dealing with this. And that mm-hmm. generally tends to at least open the door a crack.
0: Willpower. I, I kind of agree with you. Just it never lasts. It, 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 yeah. I feel like it exhausts very quickly. And yeah what yes. is it about willpower that makes us think it's going to work when we've tried it so many times and it hasn't?
1: Well, because we're very motivated, right? We want to get there. And also, you know, we culturally have this idea that if you want something enough, you'll just do it mm-hmm. right now in a lot of realms of life, that's correct. Like if I just bought my son a basketball hoop, he's five years old, he's mm-hmm. short, Right. He is having I have it on the lowest setting, but he's having a hard time getting it up into the hoop. But I told him, if you keep practicing it, eventually you're going to do it. So in that realm of life, it's totally true. And by the way, he got a basket this morning. Big deal in my house. Mm -hmm, Right. mm -hmm. Um, It's true there, but it doesn't apply everywhere. And one of the main things with willpower, specifically when it comes to addiction to alcohol, um, is that willpower works actually against the way our brains work. Right? So our brains, we become conditioned to, to think that we need alcohol to deal with these certain situations. And that's a subconscious belief. And so if you have willpower, if you try to exhibit and exert willpower on a situation, but you're holding on to this belief that you need alcohol to deal with stress, you're, you're directly working against your own thinking patterns. Um, and that's one, of the, that's one of the ways that one of the reasons that we try to pull willpower out of the process Um, Because the the problem there isn't that you're drinking. The problem is that you believe that you need to drink. So if we can work on that, if we can be open with ourselves about those beliefs or those thoughts, then we can change those thoughts and then willpower isn't needed. Right. And, and there's a whole host of, and I, I could go on and on about like neuroscience and how it kind of is weaved into what we do. But um, in, in suffice it to say that the reason that willpower doesn't work is generally we're saying, Hey, there's this really awesome thing, alcohol, but I'm a loser and I can't drink it. So I'm going to let all my friends go have fun and I'm going to sit here lonely. I mean, no, one's going to want to su- subject themselves to that long-term.
0: Mm-hmm. Um I guess my my next question goes back to the, the what you said about the addictive characteristics of alcohol, um, and that it is addictive to human beings. Now, you could take one you know John Doe and he yeah. could have a drink and he's you know could never have to touch it again, and then you have mm-hmm. someone else that it really, like you said sinks his claws into. What is it about alcohol? I mean, you could compare that to meth or cocaine or heroin mm-hmm. like that. I can imagine even just after one time you could be addicted. How is, how do those ty- different types of substance co-relate or are they very different? Like how is, how is alcohol addictive in, in the way that you were referring to it?
1: Well, so it's not really, it's not different necessarily than those other substances. And there are yeah. plenty of people who do cocaine occasionally mm-hmm. um, or do meth occasionally. The oh, narrative sure. we have about it is that once you do it, you're hooked forever. That's mm-hmm. not necessarily true. Um, with alcohol, you know, the, the, what happens, and I get asked this question all the time, why are some people normal drinkers and other people can't control it? Totally. And it, there's a whole bunch of reasons and we're starting to understand more and more of those reasons. Part of it is genetic. Right. Part of it is, you know, um, you know, a predisposition to certain types of uh, emotional states. Part of it also is outside of genetics. Part of it is also what you grew up around. Right. So I always tell this story of, you know, the first girl I ever lived with, I used to come home from work every day, every single day, put down my bag, take off my shoes, pour a scotch. We did that for months and she finally turned to me and she's like, why do you do that? Mm. Like, why do you do that? And I had never considered it. I never thought about it. And my answer to her was, this is just what you do. What do you mean? Like, how is that a question? You come home from work and have a drink. Like what? It was like the weirdest question to me, but it was so normal to me to do that because that's what I grew up around, right? So that's another piece of the equation. Um, And then another one is when people start crossing that that emotional line. Um, And some people don't do that, right? So like, we're all told, you know, if you're living alone, like, oh, don't drink alone. Right. Why are we told that? We're told that because when you start drinking for those reasons of loneliness or those reasons from negative emotion, that's how addiction starts to form. So there's all types of reasons why. And they have to do with when you started drinking and how often you drank and how much you drank. And it's 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 not a simple black or white issue. Um, But it is absolutely true that someone can go their entire life having one beer a week or even several beers a week and totally miss the addiction trend while as other people like me can start drinking in college and go down that road very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, it all has to do with a whole host of factors. But what I will say is e- anyone given enough time and enough alcohol will become addicted, right? Mm-hmm. They just, you know, some of us are gonna hit those signposts earlier than others, but it's a road that, that most people who are drinking, I will say all people who are drinking are potentially on.
0: Mm-hmm. I see it too, I mean, just in some of the work that I've done granted has been more like food addictions, which is yep. kind of a slippery sure. slope. Cause we, we have to, we rationalize what well, we need food to live, mm-hmm. you know, but it's certainly, you know, most of those people that I've really done kind of deeper interventions with and work with it's, it has stemmed from their childhood and it's their way of they, how they reconnect with baking with their mother or their grandmother yes. on Sunday afternoons. So there's something, some emotional tie to mm-hmm. that, to the behavior and, you know, it's like parents or grandparents who are alcoholics tend to just pass it generationally down. Right. And I, a lot of, go
1: ahead. I was going to say, that's one of the reasons I think people think there's like a really strong genetic component Mm. and research really isn't clear on that. However, we know that, you know, people who grow up with parents who act a certain way will tend to act that way when they grow up. The same thing is true with drinking. Right. And that's, I think, one of those other things, you know, my um, so in my family, my dad's uh, been sober for 17 years through AA. Um, And he was a he was a go to resource for me when I was struggling those last five or six years of drinking. of like, should I do this? Should I not do this? Do I have a problem? Do I not have a problem? And, um, you know, when I talk to him about it, he always talks about how, you know, his sister has a problem with alcohol. His brother who's passed now, he had a problem with alcohol. Um, you know, it talks about this idea that there's a genetic component to it. And again, like that may play a role, but I also know plenty of people who have parents that are like really far down the alcohol abuse road and they don't drink at all. So there's nothing about genetics. That's a determinant, right? There's nothing about genetics that says you will end up in this position. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a lot of other factors that go into it.
0: Mm -hmm. I kind of feel like, um, you know, our, our parents or, or let's just say our lives, my life is either going to be a, a warning to others as to what not to do or an example of what's possible. And I feel like for me, uh, especially when it comes to my parents, you know, just love of being a foodies and, you mm-hmm. know, my mom, my mom was my mom and dad were both uh, overweight for the majority of my upbringing to my mom passed away it just was one of those things i realized at a very young age i wasn't going to go down that path so i remember clearly around like eight years old i decided no more dessert no more it was like my act of defiance because i was angry at them but to this day i'm still a very fit individual in our family just because of the conscious decision of choosing and but when i do let it go and i just kind of like throw the baby out with the bathwater, christmas time or whatever like weight does actually come on pretty fast for me you know genetically sure. yeah. you know yeah. yeah um so it just it requires a very high level of of intentionality i feel like for me to keep weight off now i feel like if someone were to come from a family of a lot of alcohol use it would probably be very similar unless they consciously decide which is kind of what you're talking about right it's like yes not even a thought to stop drink or not to have a drink when you walk in the house to take your shoes off but it maybe just becomes that type of just behavior like it's a habit of like brushing your teeth every night. You don't even have to think about it, right?
1: Exactly. And that's that's what I'm talking about when I talk about subconscious beliefs is this mm-hmm. idea of like, oh, I'm celebrating. You need alcohol to celebrate. Or, mm-hmm. oh, I'm angry. I need alcohol to feel better, mm-hmm. right? We have all of this subconscious these subconscious beliefs and they're derived from our experiences and very often our experiences when we're kids. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, we carry those around with us and you know, that this naked mind model is about the idea that there's something that happens out there. It comes in through our senses. It's first processed through subconscious thoughts. Those subconscious thoughts cause conscious thoughts. Those conscious thoughts cause emotions and those emotions cause actions. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of times people just start at the end of that chain, just start with the action. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's what I was saying earlier when I mentioned when you just start with willpower, you just start with the action, you're actually ignoring the rest of that process. Um, And so for us, the idea is if we can change things upstream, if we can change those subconscious beliefs, if we can give you tools to change those conscious thoughts, then the emotions you have aren't going to be the same, which means the actions you have aren't going to be the same.
0: See, it's so funny that you we're talking about this because I literally had a conversation just the other day where it was the exact opposite, where the individual was like, "It doesn't matter about the beliefs or what happened upstream. Let's just change the, you know, it is what it is. It's a fact, or whatever, or this has all happened in the past. Let's just change the, the behaviors and the actions now." And my thought, because I and why they said that, because I was thinking, well, I said, "Do you need to change the beliefs and the stories?" Because for at least for me, so much that I've that i know that i've behaved and done things certain ways because of all my beliefs and all of my stories that i've created that are in alignment with that and things might change for a little bit of time while i'm human willing it or i'm really conscious to it but my default my muscle memory just like with sports whatever it all goes back to just what i've just ingrained and i've just been doing for my entire life so to me it makes more sense to go back into that side of it so it's interesting to hear you say that and I think that makes a lot more sense. So with this process that you're talking about with this naked mind, Mm -hmm. you are going back to the root of the thought or the belief or the act. Yeah, I mean...
1: That's the idea. And you use the word stories. And I like I kind of use stories and beliefs interchangeably. But Mm -hmm. you know, if you think about what our lives are, I mean, none of us necessarily not to get all woo woo on you, but like, none of us necessarily uh, see reality for exactly what it is. We see reality through the stories we tell ourselves, right through the, um, through the experiences that we've had, you know, so if you watch a movie now, your reaction to it could be very different than if you'd watched it 10 years ago. Um, and so to that end, like those things are, those things are, they have an effect on our thinking, Mm. right? They are, they are, they are changing our thoughts. Mm. And again, you know, our thoughts are what guides our behavior. And so what we do is we help people identify what those beliefs might be. And some of them are going to be really simple, right? Some of them are going to be like, I need alcohol to relax. Right. And so we'll talk about that. And we have techniques for that to help you kind of deconstruct that and figure out, oh, is that really true or not? Um, the cool thing about those beliefs is they can be rewritten, but very often we have to do that consciously. Now, this happens to people um, without going through the process. you know if you uh, if you were to take someone who had an issue with alcohol and put them in a place uh, where alcohol isn't available, um actually, you know what i have there's a really good study about this. I believe it's with heroin, um and it was with heroin addicts who get arrested and thrown in jail mm-hmm. um, in that particular jail. There was no heroin available. And so they quit and they didn't have massive withdrawal symptoms and they didn't have these huge, uh, you know, these huge, this big cognitive dissonance because it just wasn't an option. But a really interesting thing happened is that as soon as they got onto the street, as soon as it was available, then they started feeling horrible right? Because it was a choice for them. But what's interesting is in that time frame, their beliefs changed, right? They shifted from, I need heroin to sleep. I don't know what people think they need heroin for, but like, you know, I need heroin to relax to, oh, look at that. I just relaxed anyway. Um, those beliefs are deeply ingrained. And, and as I mentioned, they're subconscious. And so we're not necessarily thinking that, right? Anyone who's dealt with an alcohol issue before knows that feeling of like, oh, I need a drink. Um, but we're not necessarily connecting those dots. We're not saying, "I am so stressed out right now. If I drink, then I won't feel as stressed out." We just feel this urge. We just feel this need, and that is the that is a symptom of of a subconscious story um, that keeps us stuck. And so we try to help people identify those stories and shift those stories.
0: Mm-hmm. Which I feel like is work that is, I wouldn't say impossible to do on on your own, but awfully difficult. To just it's really do it. hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To do it through a book or listening to a podcast. Like it really needs to be facilitated by a professional like yourself, or through a mm-hmm. program where you've got a community. You're not alone. Uh, otherwise, I feel like a lot of times we we can't even see our own blind spots. You know? Yeah.
1: One of the things that I think people and you just hit on it there with the blind spot comment. It, it's we want to, and again, this is particularly guys want to go it alone. Like we mm-hmm. want to. We you know. Marlboro at you know, out there on our horse, like just taking care of stuff. Um, but the reality is a lot of times when you're in the middle of it, it's very difficult to see. And this is true with coaching in general. You know, I still get coaching and I actually just reached out to my coach the other day because I had a problem and it has nothing to do with alcohol. Um, but I was having an issue and I couldn't understand it. And of course, you know, she gets back to me and she says, here's what I see. And I go, Oh God, that's so obvious, but yeah. I never would have tripped on it myself. Yeah. It takes that reflection back from someone else. And that's, that's a huge part of the process.
0: Well, and not, and, and actually taking the emotion out of it sometimes Yes. for me, I'm like well, I, they're like, well, how did you see that? I was like, it's, it's, it's clear to me because I don't have that emotional tie, uh, right. You know, just like maybe your that first girlfriend was very easy to see. Like this is what you do. I've I've dated <laughs> girlfriends, and they had a couple of drinks every single night. You know, and their hobby is going to Napa Valley. You know, thirty times in a lifetime, exactly. and I'm like exactly, yeah. and that's normal, and that's fun, and that's being a woman. I'm like, I don't know, if I'm healthy or not. You know, yeah, like, and so, but again, to each their own. But it's like it's hard when we're in it to see our own scotomas and our own blind spots. And I think that's what's so useful to have um, even people that are outside of our family, friends circle, because they don't have any sense of real connection. Right. So they can actually just tell you the truth without the, the BS, you know, shoot you straight, which I think is so important too.
1: This is one thing, you know, that, Um, I think AA does really well is those in-person meetings and people sharing their stories and having a sponsor and having someone that you can call because um, you know being able to being able to have your experience or the words you just said maybe reflected back to you Mm. um, it doesn't take that much for you to see something new um, that maybe you've been going around and around with this for years and just a simple conversation can open up a new perspective and that's that's huge
0: That's what's so cool about, and that's why I feel like I'm so addicted to, uh, in a good sense, just personal development, human behavior, is that just literally one little shift of an aha can change your whole, the the lens through which you see life, and you can change your trajectory, you know, and you can let go of old stories when when something changes. That's what I think is so cool about it, you know?
1: I explain it to people, I I mentioned I'm an engineer, so like if you think of like the difference between a two-degree angle and a three-degree angle, it's not a lot right now. But if you were to go, you know, 50 feet to one direction, it's a huge gap, right? Oh, totally. And so it's amazing how those little ahas can add up, right? And those new perspectives can can lead to a completely different situation.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I think I wrote about that. Just the, Yeah, flying from LA to Hawaii, just one yeah. degree off will put you 50, a little bit more than 50 miles off of, you know, landing in Honolulu. And that's, you know. That's obviously a death sentence if you don't have a place to refuel. So it's like, that's how life is a lot of times. It's just those little tiny things might not Mm -hmm. seem like a lot, but man, the compound effect of that over a year, a decade, over a lifetime is, you know, just the difference maker, honestly.
1: Well, the compound effect of that or the compound effect of lots of little aha moments oh, right and i think that's something else that really helps in in i mean personal development in general but also in the, the processes that we do which i guess is technically personal development is um you know people will say i have i never really thought about social circles that way and it's not a big deal to them but they're like oh that's a new perspective and like oh that's a new perspective on stress or oh that's a new perspective on health and suddenly those things start adding up and it changes everything
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think the interesting thing too, is that I think a lot of times we're, <laughs> we want the big hit in some sense. I mean, we're talking about, you know, alcohol and substance abuse in some sense, but like I was, when I first getting, got into Tony Robbins and various, you know, seminars, I had such yeah. huge epiphanies, you know, yeah. mind changing, life changing epiphanies, but then I found myself wanting more of that. And what I found was like, I mean, you could take a five-year-old, you know, like your, your, your son and teach him to play basketball or even teach him to swing that growth, exponential growth process of learning how to swing a bat and hit a ball can, you can pick up a ton of, you know, uh, just learning how to do something really fast. Right. Versus Mm -hmm. put him at 18, 19, 20 years old. He's in the minor leagues or the pressure, like the tiniest of like minuscule changes that they're working on between their wrists, you know, and their finger placement. You talk about that, that analogy with, with any sport for that matter. That's where I feel like once you really get into it and you get a lot of the big rocks moved, then Mm -hmm. it's just the the, the tiniest little things that you may not even totally notice are that big, but like to your point, it makes a huge difference over time. Right. And I think that's maybe what you're saying is like the work has to continue. You can't just, think it's going to do like one course and be done with it. Right. Yeah.
1: I mean, so we, you know, although that being said, like, you know, we'll say pretty regularly, like I, and I feel this way about my job. Like my job is to make myself irrelevant Mm -hmm. in my client's lives as quickly as possible. Now, that does mean, first of all, helping them, you know, get to a place where alcohol is small and irrelevant for them. But it also means giving them the tools to continue to grow. And this is something I've found, you know, over these last few years of running these programs is that, you know, people go through an alcohol program, people go through a, um, You know, maybe we had a three month program called the intensive and they'll get to the other side and they'll be like, yes, I'm alcohol free and I'm, and I'm happy, right? I'm not alcohol free and miserable with willpower and I'm happy, but here's the thing, right? Entropy is a real thing. So again, as an engineer, entropy is the amount of randomness or disorder in a system and entropy increases over time, unless you're putting more energy into something. And so what happens, and I talk to people about this all the time, like they come through a program and they're like, yes, I feel great. Well, you need to keep growing, right? This isn't about getting to a certain level and staying there. Um, And so to me, making myself irrelevant in people's lives means not only helping them with the alcohol stuff, but giving them tools and stuff they can use to continue to grow. They don't have to grow with me or they don't have to grow with this naked mind. The important thing is that they continue to continue to grow and continue to make those changes. And, you know, just like your analogy that you just used, like, yes, right now it's a big deal when my son actually hits a baseball when it comes by him not so much of a big deal when you're 18 right if Mm -hmm. you're in the minor leagues like you should be doing that on a regular basis Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but because he's had all of that practice because he's done all of those things he understands he has the mental discipline and he has the tools and maybe the coaching to help him make these minor adjustments and he gets it right he understands it that's what i think is really important That you know people go through this process I, i it happens to me a lot they'll look at me and be like all right scott what's next And I'm like, I remember the first client that said that to me. I'm like, what do you mean? Like you haven't drank in two months. Like we're done. Right. But then I realized, oh no, not only is that, is that something that this client needed? It's something that I've been doing. It's something that people need.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's, that's, uh, I think that's such a great point. I kind of say the same thing. It's like, I, I want you uh as a client to fire me as soon as possible. You know, yeah, like that's exactly. I'm not looking for long term uh, you know, a contract here per se. But I, I had been told at one point that like if you're with a coach for more than let's say 18 months, then it's just time, even if it's going well, it's time to get a new perspective and time to get a new coach. And that's one thing that I feel like I can attribute to a massive change in my life over the last 10 years since my life imploded, has just been I've more or less consistently always had a coach of some area of my life that I wanted to improve, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. just because of being able to bring that new perspective that I don't have and be able to see little things without my emotion connected to it. I think that's so important. Otherwise I think we, we, you can't easily ultimately fall very quickly back into being overly confident and that ego sneaks in and it's like, Oh, I got this. I can have one drink and then next thing you know, you're on a bender, you know? So
1: I, I hear know. that all the time. Or, you know, one of, the, one of the big ones is people are like, look, I don't want to quit drinking. I want to learn how to moderate. Um, and by the way, that's completely possible. Like there are people out there who can moderate. Now, two caveats to that. First of all, by the time someone is, you know, paying a lot of money to be in a program, chances are they've gone far enough down that road that that's not very likely. Mm-hmm. That being said, though, I see people doing it all the time. Mm-hmm. The, the second caveat is I think people can do it Um, but you know, my recommendation on that is to wait, to give yourself a chunk of time alcohol-free, um, until you do it, that chunk of time that, you know, most people take a year, that's how you can make sure that your ego doesn't get in the way because now, you know, like, wait a minute, I'm making this decision with this other experience. Um, but yeah, I, I hear it all the time that people will say, you know, they're like three days alcohol-free and they're like, I got this. It's been three days. It's going to be fine. Um, and people have to learn that for themselves, you know, I, I, I can do as much explaining about it as, as, as possible, but ultimately, and I was the same way too. Like I had to learn that didn't work. I tried all those things. Like I'm only going to drink on weekends or I'm only going to drink, you know, when I'm not at home or I'm only going to drink once a week or one drink at all that stuff we try to do to try to control, um that stuff that we have to learn isn't going to work until we're ready to, to, you know, make
0: that move and leave that ego behind. Well, isn't that really the thing, the the control aspect, right? I think that's the biggest thing is us attempting to control something that we really cannot. And I think that's why I feel like the the humility and the transparency and the surrender is so important uh, and having the accountability of others in the program or sponsors or, you know, all that stuff that, that supports you through that process of just staying humble not taking it for granted, just taking it one day at a time. Right. Exactly.
1: Yeah. yeah. And that's, so I'm a big fan of stoicism and that's dichotomy of control, right? What are you focusing on? Are you mm-hmm. focusing on stuff you can't control or stuff you can control? Mm-hmm. And very often when people come into our programs, alcohol is not in the things that they can control. They've tried, they don't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. And so we have them focus on some of those things they can control, which is their thoughts and the way that they feel and help them shape those and change those so that they can take different actions in their life.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's talk about real quick too the, just the, the, the conversation around support systems. You know, I've been to a few uh, Al-Anon meetings with mm-hmm. um, gals that I've been dating or whatever, who've been affected either by, you know, a sibling, someone that they are, you know, close encounters to, um, but I, my thought goes to like the whole cliche of like, if if you're going someplace and the guy's lost, like women kind of joke around, like, you know, we could stop and ask for directions. He's like, yeah. no, it's so important for the guy and, and how men oftentimes find their sense of self-confidence is proving it to themselves that they can provide, mm-hmm. get us from yes. point A to point B. And that's where I feel like the human will and the and the ego and the bravado is like, I got this, I can do this by myself. Although if you're driving down the road and and your spouse or significant other sitting next to you and be like, just pull over, the more that they want you to pull over, the more you're like, no, I'm going to figure this out on my own. So that support, I feel like, especially with loved ones, is is important with how much grace they give not only their loved one who might be abusing alcohol, but also themselves. How does um, AA or Al-Anon or anything like that help educate people with how to best support each other? Because that's a tough role to be in no matter what, if you're at if you're really close to the source of some abuse there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there's, you know, there's a lot of different methods and, and models. Um, I'm not as familiar with how AA helps uh, loved ones, but you know, Al-Anon and things like that are really helpful to get, really get to a place of understanding mm. of what is actually going on. So like, I've had multiple conversations with my wife about what it was like for me when I was in the middle of my drinking. Mm-hmm. So what that was like. And she says to me, and has said to me so many times, she's like, like, no offense, but I just don't get it. And not not like she doesn't understand how it could be addictive. She doesn't understand what it's like because she hasn't been there. Yeah. And that makes it really difficult for loved ones, you know, because they don't understand. And a lot of times we try to take our stories and our beliefs and our way of thinking and put that into someone else's head. And we'll say, Well, geez, if I was doing that, I wouldn't have a drink. Right. This is one of the reasons that people will give ultimatums because they're like, well, look, he loves me more than he loves alcohol. So either the booze goes or I do. And then they're surprised when when that happens and and when the choice is made and they're not chosen. And one of the reasons for that is that they don't have that that experience. Um, And that's one thing that 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 can be very difficult for for people uh who are dealing with loved ones that are in the middle of this um annie annie and i you know put together a course called helping a loved one um which is very specifically about our own methodology and how and it's not for the people who are in our courses it's for their their loved ones so whether that's you know a spouse or significant other or brother or sister mother whoever it is Mm -hmm. um you know it's for those people who have been trying to who have seen where people are at and and trying to get them to change their behavior to have them understand what's different about us. Um, And one of the very simple things is that like, we're very different. Like if you take our flagships courses cause the intent is called the intensive. One of the very first things that people hear when they come into the intensive and see me live on Facebook is you don't have to quit drinking right now. Now, those people have also paid money for a course to quit drinking. And so there's this like, what are you talking about? And that's definitely on more than one occasion caused some interesting conversations at home. Well, Scott says, I don't have to quit drinking yet. So we had to make this thing to explain like, how does this methodology work? But also, what are the things that a loved one can do? And some of those things that we recommend um, are things like, first and foremost, take care of yourself first. Um, very often when a loved one gets sucked into this, we can get sucked into it with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and just in the same way that someone who's addicted to something will maybe potentially not take care of themselves as much, we can start doing that same thing because we're so busy. Um, but, you know, it's the, oxygen, it's the oxygen mask analogy. That's why they tell you on a plane, put your oxygen mask on first and then your kids. You need to be in the right place to help. Um, and also understanding that, you know, their addiction Doesn't have anything to do with you. And it's very easy, again, when we don't understand what it feels like to take their actions um, personally. You know, oh, he chose to get drunk and pass out on the couch instead of sit here and talk to me. Um, That's what it seems like from the outside. So understanding that, you know, what addiction is and learning more about addiction and whatever method your loved one is going through, those are the things that you can do through taking care of yourself and educating yourself and and giving them grace that's how you can best support them and all of those are counterintuitive you know most people who are dealing with a loved one who's going through this they they you know feel emotions and those emotions can cause actions that are not necessarily that helpful but understanding that taking care of themselves first is is probably one of the best things they can do
0: i love that i love that well in wrapping things up if some you know if someone's listening to this and really wants to kind of get into some of the work with you um Mm -hmm where can they find out more about all these programs and get some support?
1: So the best place to find out about it is at our website. So this mm-hmm. Um, we've got all of our programs are up there. The information's up there. We also have a ton of free information, uh, like an awful lot of free information. And so, you know, uh, we want to make sure and make this as accessible as possible. So whether you're just kind of like curious and like, I want to find out more, there's a lot there for you. If you want to find out about programs, it's this
0: Awesome. 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 If people wanted to touch base with you, in, you know, independently, would be through email, social media. What's the best way to, to connect with you?
1: Yeah, the best way to get me, uh, you can always send me an email. That's scott yeah. at this naked Uh Perfect. I'm in there. I get a lot of emails from people who are at a lot of different parts uh, of their journey. Um, and I'm always, always here to lend an ear and, and give some direction
0: beautiful i love it love it and those of you that are listening that are men and want to join us for our men's meeting uh if you're listening to this prior to october 12th 2020 is that the right date yes october 12th 2020 scott will be our special guest and we're going to be able to to be live and have q a and really kind of dive in deep with uh with my meeting of men all online so feel free to go to meeting of men.com and grab a free ticket there um Yeah, I love it. Scott, thank you so much for your time, your expertise. Uh, I'm just really grateful to be able to support you and also guys and and gals that are listening to this that might need some support. So appreciate you, man.
1: Awesome. Thank you. It was fun.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you again for joining me on the Johnny King show. If uh, you like this, please feel free to leave a comment, uh, forward it to your friends who might be needing some support. and Until next time, enjoy the day. Take care, everyone. And I want to thank you so much for listening to The Johnny King Show. And hey, if you got something positive from this episode, please subscribe to the show, share it on your favorite social platform, and then tag me in it so I can say hi. It would also mean the world to me if you wrote a review of the show on Apple Podcasts because I read every single one. Do you feel like there's something I could be doing better? Awesome. I totally thrive on constructive feedback, and it's always welcome. So if you've got questions or concerns, you can always reach me via email at podcast at johnnyking.com. And then please follow me on Instagram at johnnyking, facebook.com backslash Johnny king men's coach, on my YouTube channel and LinkedIn. Thanks again for joining me. I've been Johnny King. You've been amazing, and we'll catch up with you next time. Take care.